WNHHFM 103.5 Just in Time Conversations. I'm your host, Justin Farmer, inviting you to be in community with us about conversations, ideas that matter with people making a difference. Today, our guest is Lauren Anderson of Possible Futures. Um, how are you, friend? How are things? How is your head? How is your heart? Oh, thank you for asking about both. I am doing really well. I'm very happy to be here. Thank you so much for the invite. I am uh, joining from from the book space itself this morning uh, from Possible Futures. And so whenever I'm here, I'm I'm extra happy, <laughs> full of optimism, you know. Um, so thanks. Thanks for um, bringing me on. I, I thought you were going to be punny and say full of possibilities, but, you know, that, <laughs> right. I'm trying to keep my puns to a minimum because I am, I am known for some really bad wordplay and I, um, extreme nerdiness. So I try to tamp it down. This is <laughs> a safe space of word association, puns, similes. Listen. Um, well, uh, I will let I will let my nerd flag fly high when, this morning, Justin. Thanks. Um, so I always like to get connected with people, let people know who the guests are before going into the meat and potatoes, right? And so, you know, one of my big things I do is hot takes. And so, you know, I think I already know your answer to this, right? But are audiobooks, if you listen to an audiobook, are you reading? Oh my God. Yes. <laughs> I mean, absolutely. I also am like a big, so I, I come out of, I was a teacher and I like come out of a philosophical like community of people who like really identify with what's called like critical pedagogy, this idea it, like literacy is not just reading the word, but reading the world. And so, mm. you know, a lot of times young people will say about themselves or people will say about them, like, I, they can't read or I can't read. And I always am like, you really have to challenge that idea. Like you're reading all the time. And of course, there's like the very particular stuff of reading words on a page and that's important, but I think the broadest definition of reading is receiving critically um, mm. information and interpreting it. And you can like read letters on a page and decode them and sound them out and not understand them. And I actually think that's a lot of what, <laughs> unfortunately, some young people are really experiencing and that's the, actually the most impoverished kind of reading because it's not actually about critical engagement and understanding and so when you're talking about audiobooks um you're absolutely critically receiving the written word you're just receiving it in a different format and then all of the work your brain is doing and the interpretation that your brain is doing is absolutely reading so we are all we are all readers we're just at different places in our reading journey and development. And we're, we have different preferences um, and strengths, you know, that, that shape the way that we engage with things that have been written. But um, 
but yes, audiobooks are reading, Justin, <laughs> and I enjoy reading them quite a bit. And I also enjoy recommending them to people. Um, a great, a great audiobook is sort of a special thing because it's not just about the words, right? It's also about the person reading them and how they're reading them and the way that you hear them. Um, so I take it you're an audiobook reader. I am. I've just started to become an audiobook reader. I, uh, I, uh, my new thing. I do not do things twice. But my mm. new thing is that I will read a book and listen to the audiobook. Sometimes at the same time. Sometimes do one then the other. Yeah. Um, and I recently re reread, re listened to um, um, the autobiography of Malcolm X, and mm -hmm. that was experience to hear it read and yeah. to listen in process versus look at the text and read in process and it was mm -hmm. just as powerful of a, a, a narrative of self uh reading it and hearing it although you know it was a really good uh, uh narrator who just mm -hmm. like had a dynamic voice so yeah. i'm a big fan uh what so what is a, a favorite audio book then of yours? So it's funny. Um, I'll mention one that kind of made me a, an audiobook fan. Okay. Um, and I just want to say that I actually think who reads the book is really clutch. And like there are definitely some audiobooks um, that haven't been read by the right person, in my opinion. <laughs> and it's a shame because I think you experience it's it's so much shapes your experience the the reader um the book that i absolutely loved is actually a middle grades novel so it's written for like kids in you know fifth sixth seventh grade but um you know this about me i think that i'm like a really big proponent of everybody reading children's books and books for young people because most of us did not um as young people get to read the books that are the young person that's still inside of us most needed. And mm. um, I also think they're beautiful, you know, um, and they put you back in touch with parts of yourself um, in a way that I think books written for adults can too, but there's something often really special about it. So I, I try having been a teacher and I try to read, you know, books written for people of all ages. And I really savor ones written for young people. And there's this book called, um, king and the dragonflies and i've kind of talked about it a lot people are probably sick of me saying it but it's a spectacular story so it's written by case and calendar who's like a great and prolific up-and-coming young um black trans author who writes predominantly for like a ya and middle grades audience and um the book is about king or kingston james who goes by king he has recently lost his older brother um and to whom he was very close and his his brother um it's called king and the dragonflies because for a period of time he thinks his brother is coming back to him as a as a dragonfly he lives um king lives in um like the bayou part of uh louisiana and he's going through like a grief journey but he's also dealing with the fact that his brother said something to him before he passed away and what he said uh, this isn't giving anything away, really. He he told King to be careful about hanging out with another kid because people might think he was gay. Mm. And um, and King is left with that comment from his brother, and his brother is now gone. And he's 12 years old, and he is trying to figure out who he is, but he's also trying to figure out what to do with this piece of advice that feels really big and really loaded and really complicated and very much about how he understands himself. Um, and the reader of it was just like the reader of this book. So it was a, it's just an amazing book, but I also feel like the reader of it was not the author. It was a voice actor who it was just the most sparkling auditory experience in terms of like not overperforming it, but really making you feel like you were hearing primarily King because he's the main character, but also the other people in 
his life, including his family members who are also grappling with this really profound loss. Um, it's just so beautiful. And I, I don't think I was kind of skeptical about audiobooks because I'm just, I always was such a book lover. Um, and I don't want to say like, I mean what I was, I, I've always meant what I've said about um, this expansive notion of what literacy is, but, but I think for myself, because I loved reading books so much, I just thought like, eh, audiobooks really aren't for me. And then um, I listened to a few and early on, this was one of them. And it totally turned me as an experience because I just was like, wow, this is another dimension um, to kind of receiving a story. And when it's done well, and it's a certain kind of piece of writing, it can just come alive in a way um, that's pretty special. So that that's my, that's my, kind of soft sell on King and the Dragonflies <laughs> by Case and Calendar as an audiobook. Um, I also really loved, there was, you mentioned Malcolm X, but there's a recent biography by Lester Payne, who actually wrote it with his daughter, Tamara Payne. Um, and he passed away as a famous journalist, black journalist, um, who worked for like 20 years on um, this biography of Malcolm X called The Dead Are Arising. Um, and is a really different kind of book because it's just jam-packed with like all these details about Malcolm's life that um, have and haven't been revealed in other places and is like, you know, 25 hours or something like that. So that was like a really different experience, but also pretty wonderful. So for those of y'all who are just joining us, you're listening to Just In Time Conversations, WNN. HHFM 103.5. I'm your host, Justin Farmer, our illustrious guest, Lauren Anderson of Possible Futures. I um I I will have to give that book a check out. Uh, another shout out. Can't remember the authors, uh, but Black Cake. Um, mm, Charmaine Wilkerson. So there good. You go. <laughs> right. For those of us, the Caribbean uh aesthetic, it was just nice to. I was like, man, is that my mom speaking, like reading me a book? Like, so. Totally. Yeah, it's funny. Another one and this, I'll be really quick because I know I, I could talk forever about books, but there's a book called um, Sharks in the Time of Saviors that I oh. abso absolutely loved. It was a debut novel by a guy named Kawhi Strong Washburn, who is Black, grew up in Hawaii, but is not Native Hawaiian. And the book, he actually wrote the book over like 10 years. I think he's like a software developer or something and a dad of two in, in like Minneapolis, right? Worked on this book for this enormous like chunk of his life. And um, it's about this native family that's kind of contending with the dynamics of like contemporary Hawaii, which is not something that I know a lot about, except that I know it's gotten extremely expensive. Gentrification is like a huge issue. There's obviously like the legacies of colonialism and the like intergenerational um, and trauma, right, of what's happened in that space. But the story is about this kid who, his name is Nainoa, he's the youngest of three um, in a family of five, and he falls overboard. Oh, no. They're on a boat trip, and he's carried back to the boat by a shiver of sharks, unharmed. And people think that he is sort of like blessed or imbued with like special powers because of this thing that happened to him. Right. Thanks. And, um, and the story follows him and his siblings and family members over the arc of their lives and kind of how this incident and this set of circumstances that lead people to believe he has special powers, how it impacts all of them, him as the kind of primary person, but also his siblings. Like, what is it like to be the sibling of somebody touched by um, kind of, magic and when you mentioned like is this my mom reading i mean the readers so it's written um chapter by chapter in the perspective of the different characters and they again like had four or five different indigenous hawaiian readers mm -hmm. who read the different characters parts and it completely i think elevated the experience of the book in a really special way. I've recommended it to people on paper and they've absolutely loved it. But I do think like when you're saying like, what is it like to hear 
to hear something read in a voice that feels authentic to the character. Um, I think that like that's that's pretty special. And I think both if you're somebody like you're saying, is this my mother reading? <laughs> like it's familiar to you. But also if you're somebody for whom it's not like a familiar sounding thing and you're reading outside of your own cultural experience to be able to hear the voices mm. of people um, acted out um, by folks who understand them as characters in a way that's different than you would. Um, you know, it's really, it's like really additive to the experience of like why we read diverse voices. So. Well, I, the only downfall for me is like, I love to highlight and underline quotes and little things. Yeah, and so totally. that's the part that I will sometimes miss where I'm like, man, like, let me like try to record this little part so I can like remember like what did they say, <laughs> right? Um, so I, on that note, on that vein, um, books are being banned, right? Particularly yeah. children's books. Um, you know, you were an educator. And so, you know, how do you present books to how should books be presented to youth? And are there topics or themes that are too inappropriate for youth? Mm. That's so hard to answer, but I'll try. Um, I think we don't give young people enough credit in a lot of ways for making, for making good choices for themselves. I also think there's a real art to teaching young people how to know themselves and make good decisions for themselves. Like, and it's not necessarily teaching them, but um, you know, the difference between being like a guide on the side and a, a, a sage on the stage is like <laughs> accompaniment. Like there is a real art to accompanying young people on their decision-making paths. I was talking to a really wonderful young person the other day, Asha. Um, Asha is now uh 13, 14, um, the child of uh, a friend of mine. Um, and Asha was talking about uh, wanting to read books that didn't necessarily have a lot of like sex and um, kind of intimacy of certain kinds yet because she, she didn't feel ready for it. And I just like, I loved that. And I was like, there's, there must be people in Asha's life that have really supported Asha to kind of know what she's ready for and what she's not. Um, and it, it wasn't like a stigma thing. She was just like, that's not what I'm ready to read yet. People often think she's a tall young person. People often think I'm older than I am, you know? Um, and they make recommendations to me and I, they're just not, it doesn't feel like what I should be reading for myself right now. Um, and so I'm very much in the camp of like, can we support young people to know themselves well and to know better what they're ready for and what they're not? Certainly, I don't think if you're talking about things like it's too soon to teach kids about race or sexual orientation or major like issues of like societal life that are going on right around them, police brutality, I think it's ridiculous. Now, that doesn't mean I think every conversation is an appropriate conversation for young people or that you have to be talking with like granular specifics with young people about um, traumatic things that maybe they they aren't actually really fully ready themselves to like make sense of. But I think categorically, there aren't like books that are inappropriate for like topics that are inappropriate for young people. I mean... Part of the reason why trauma happens in a lot of folks' lives is because young folks aren't supported to, for example, understand like what bodily autonomy is. Mm. Right. No. And then they and then they might end up in situations where they feel like, you know, they didn't have the kind of control that they wanted. Um, so, you know, that's a like pretty abstract answer, but I love the idea more than I more than I like picking books for kids I like the idea of supporting young people um to make good choices for themselves and also helping them read like widely outside of themselves so that 
you know, they have a sense of other people's perspectives. I mean, that's what, that's what reading is often about. It's both about like getting in touch with yourself, but also understanding the point of view of other people. Um, so, I mean, the book banning stuff that's happening now is like, it's pretty ridiculous and it's really reflective of, I think, like fear on the part of. Um, you said reactive? No, let me stop. Reactive, reductive, <laughs> ridiculous. There's a lot of R words in there. <laughs> um, but, you know, it's like, it's just fear. It's like adults not, adults not being able to have real conversations <laughs> about, you know, the rights of, for example, trans folks, mm. you know, and therefore not wanting children to have access to that information. You know, it's, it's really, it's really short-sighted. It's really small-minded and it's actually counterproductive because in most cases where books have been banned, they've actually become more popular. <laughs> so it's like a little bit like, Keep banning them because I guess now like Jerry Craft, who wrote like New Kid and Class Act and, um, you know, he's best selling author now in a way he wasn't before. He's on the Trevor Noah show, and you know, um, and that's really coming out of the fact that he was somebody, you know, whose books were banned in Texas. And it's like the backlash to the banning is actually in some ways amplifying uh, amplifying those books, but also amplifying the kind of ridiculousness of a lot of the challenges. And, and I think like, it doesn't necessarily help to frame all of the challenges as ridiculous, but I think there's still the thing of like, nobody's, nobody's forcing anyone to read <laughs> certain things, you know, like if you don't want to read it, don't read it. It's a total yeah. other thing to like make it your mission to deny other people access to that thing. Um, and that's really what's been happening in most places where book banning is underway is that it's like a small minority of folks who are loudly squawking about books being available, not just to their own children, but, um, but to the broader population of folks for whom they really should not be in any way making decisions. No, I, I totally agree with you. I, uh, I, it's just like, you're not going to teach Florida kids about global warming because government can't talk about global warming. Yeah. Um, I So Possible Futures, it is a bookstore. Yes? No? <laughs> well, we call it a community book space. Um, I mean, technically it's a store. It sells things. Um but we try to use the word community book space because it really is meant to be a cross between a community reading room and an independent bookstore. So you can buy the stuff that's here. And obviously, like it is a business. It's not a nonprofit. Um, when you buy things, it helps keep the lights on, pay the bills, you know, do all the things that a store has to do. But, you know, in a lot of stores, you're kind of not welcome if you're not paying money. <laughs> and the space is meant to be a place where people are welcome, irrespective of spending money. Um, we we do hope eventually that if folks need books and they've been coming here, that they'll get them from here. And we try to make it affordable for them uh, within reason to do that. And we try to just like in general support um, book access for young folks who maybe especially or families that aren't in a position to purchase um, but you know, the space is really, um, trying to decenter like the, the transactional, you know, capitalist exchange in, and to like center the more like community connection conversation that might happen and can kind of uniquely happen in public space around, around books. So it is, it is a store, but I, we try to like, be more than more than that um and i think the, the language of like a book space kind of i think does convey that i don't know if, like i i think i think i think i might have invented that word um like i it's not as if i really saw it used somewhere else but it's like what do you call something that's like a community space and but also has books in it? <laughs> like, you know just in time. It's like, it's a book space. 
<laughs> you did and say it was a safe space for for wordplay. You it, know, it so. is a safe space <laughs> on WNHH FM one hundred three point five, just in time. Uh, myself, Justin Farmer, host, talking to Lauren Anderson, uh, making the puns, making the runs. <laughs> uh, I, so I, I guess. A question to to that, right? Did you grow up with like a bookstore or a community space that kind of had the same vibe or mentored or shaped you in this aspect of wanting a community reading room? That's a really good question. I mean, not not really. Um, I think I grew up in a suburb outside of Boston. Um, and like a lot of suburbs, you know, it, like it had a it had a library, and I, I certainly went there, but I don't know that um, that I ever in my like growing up experience had what I came to long for, which was really more like a, like a commons, you know, like mm -hmm. a, like a place where people would like come together. Like you could go to the library to get out books, but it didn't it didn't for me feel like a place where you would go to be in conversation with other people kind of organically um and then I became a teacher and I feel like I really loved the parts of um having a classroom and like that that are analogous to holding a space like this together which are like kind of like the MacGyver of public school teachers <laughs> where you're like I have a stick of chewing gum and like a roll of twine and some old recycled like paper and I'm gonna make this room beautiful like um like I take great pleasure in in that kind of creativity um like making a place kind of feel loved and and beautiful without being fancy I guess um and being useful and being welcoming um and also giving the people who are in it even though like, you know, as a teacher, kind of you're responsible, I taught elementary schools, like I'm responsible for keeping the space safe. And that does require setting some ground rules that are not necessarily negotiable. Like there are things we do with scissors in a classroom and there are things we don't. <laughs> um, we do not run with the scissors. Like, you know, you just don't run with scissors. Um, but like beyond that, that like, how do you cultivate a sense of community where there is a real collective ownership um ethos that's part of it like you feel like you can make use of this space for yourself and you feel like you can put into it and you can take from it um and then I you know in my prior lives I like you know lived in some different places I always would visit the bookstores there I always would visit the libraries there um I came to really appreciate beautiful small book bookstores as like sacred spaces. And then I also did like a bunch of kind of community organizing stuff around education issues. And, you know, when you're community organizing, you need to gather people together and you need to do that in spaces that are flexible and they're just so few of them. And when you walk into one and it's wonderful, you immediately know that it's a, a special place and you immediately feel like a great sense of good fortune that you have that space to be in. And I think every neighborhood should have spaces like that. You know, sure. sometimes people are like, it's almost like the, the assumption because of the business is like, you're always thinking about your competitors and it's like, it would give me great joy, great joy. If every neighborhood in New Haven had a space like possible futures and if ultimately that meant that like possible futures <laughs> couldn't endure because these other spaces were doing like serving the, the greater purpose um, more helpfully, then that's just part of the kind of equation. It's more, it's really more about everybody having within walking distance places where they can just go and be themselves and be stimulated and be in community and feel loved and affirmed and um, and safe enough to ask important questions, you know, um, in this case, often about books, but I do think like people turn to books to work out their own emotional issues or to like 
learn about an issue they care about and don't know enough about or to prepare to do something in their life that they don't feel like they're ready for yet. And, you know, all of those are kind of tender moments in a human being's <laughs> journey. And so you need a space that like feels like tender toward mm. those tender moments. Um, so I don't know that there was like an example of a place that I was, I had in mind. Um, but there certainly are places like busboys and poets and um, yeah, like Essawan books in LA, um, some of the community centers that I used to spend time in and other places like where I worked and where I know young people felt like those were home places for them. Like there's like little bits over the weekend, there was a group here that was doing some work around Lucy Wilson Gilmore's ideas about abolition. And there's like a quote from her about like the future isn't something like we make out of nowhere. It's like, it's, it's in the fragments and the pieces of things right here and now, like that's what we use to build the future we want. And so I think like, there are all these little fragments that I've like picked up over my life. And some of them are about like being in a classroom and some of them are about community organizing and some of them are about bookstores and libraries and, and they all kind of feed into what, like possible futures is now, but also possible futures will just change as people propose things and like want it to do and serve in ways that it isn't yet, but it could, you know? No, I, that's beautiful. I, I think what I heard, um, knowing a little bit about you, uh, knowing that you used to teach teachers, um, <laughs> I, I guess what I heard in that is the importance of institutions. And so mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. what do institutions mean to you? And how do people create, right, authentic institution, right? Because I think that's what you're talking about. But what's that yeah. to you? These are deep questions just in time. Um, <laughs> So I think, you know, institutions, right, are sites of great harm and great possibility. And I think like nowhere is kind of a better reflection of that than like our public schools, right? They have roots in cultural genocide, in like white supremacy, in capitalist and colonial imper imperatives, and also every single day. Um, there, there are sites of some of the most important democratic practice in um, democratic small d, you know, in our in our country, and they're also places of great beauty, like where students and teachers not not every student and not every teacher, but where students and teachers are like working together for a better future. And so, for me, like institutions are deeply both and in terms of like sites of terror and violence and sites of healing and possibility. And we kind of, um, we kind of uh, maybe like make things harder for ourselves if we don't remember always those, those two truths, those two, at least what I consider to be truths about them. Um, and so I think when you're trying to build new institutions, I think it's inevitable you're going to err and there are going to be ways that those institutions reproduce problematic societal and structural things, but you work really hard to have the least harm and the most healing. And I think that's just like the compass for institution building. And then you rely on other people to like help you figure out when you've gone off course or where you need to like recorrect uh, you know, um, course correct. I also think like institutions at the end of the day, like are really just, they're people <laughs> working together in patterned way, ways, you know, like the institutional organizer, <laughs> you know, and so there's always that potential for like what, it, what can be built can be unbuilt. It can be 
you know, hospiced, uh, which means like humanely ended. And then the fragments of it can be taken up for some more transformative regrowth. And, you know, I'm also saying this as somebody, and I know you know this, Justin, it's like, I don't want to talk too much about it, but it's, it's like, there was a rough, there was a prior iteration of the book space, right? That, that had to go away in order for this iteration of it to bloom. And of course, there are parts and pieces of that thing that had to go away that are in this current thing. And I think sometimes, you know, just like when people talk about like, Failure is really important for learning. There's this idea that institutions kind of have to continue forever. And I don't, I don't know, I don't know that that's true. <laughs> Sometimes you have to have things go away in order to create space for new things. And so it's just, I think, being conscious always of those dynamics and, and trying to make the spaces that we create places where all different kinds of people can thrive. And also feel um, like there's space for them to suggest and participate in revision of the institution and maybe even eventually, you know, deconstruction of it if it comes if it comes to that. I I I I, I totally agree. I uh, I um no I. I think what you said, right, that there are, I've never heard hospice used in such a beautiful way. (laughs) Hospice um, is beautiful. I mean, there's nothing more humane than that, actually, if you think about it. It's like the least painful end of something that cannot go on forever, either because the quality of life that it, um, that it's perpetuating is unhealthy or toxic or, you know, or because it's just, it's not permanent. <laughs> no, no, yeah. right. So I, I, I have always wondered how, how do books go on a shelf and how do you pick, right? Do you pick, do you not pick, do you, make space? Do you not make space? How long do you make space? Like how does, what are the functions of being a community book reading place? Yeah, it's really hard, Um, but it also, (laughs) it also feels like, I don't know, like bricolage or something, like some kind of art form that's like got some math in it and some spatial stuff in it. And it's also like got a lot of like, like chicks in a high, like flow. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I think it, it clearly makes it a little bit easier in a way to have a focus. Like, I know you know this about the space, but we primarily almost exclusively shelve books by authors from groups that have been historically underrepresented in publishing or on public shelves. And so that kind of automatically winnows what you are considering for like what just goes on the shelf. I think some of it is also like really intentionally um, thinking about who is our, who, who are we in New Haven and therefore what books should we have in the room? Like it is very hard to find English Ashto books, <laughs> but in New Haven, you know, and, and some people might say if, if you're a store and every inch of your shelf space is supposed to help you pay your bills, you know, maybe that you don't, and this is part of the book space thing too. It's like, maybe you don't have those books here, but you're trying to serve community, whether or not they're going to move or sell, (laughs) you might make a decision to have them here because you want it badly enough to be the case that if somebody comes in and needs that, they find it. Even if that only happens once or twice in a period of time. And then a lot of it is just like paying attention to what's new and upcoming in publishing. And then thinking about and trying to like read the city so that like there are major issues in New Haven around, for example, housing. So (laughs) I know you know this, (laughs) New Haven, Hamden, the greater New Haven area, Connecticut. 
Connecticut has the widest wealth gap in, in the nation, right? Um, so right now, and then like nationally right now, like uh, reproductive rights are being attacked. Um, the humanity of our like trans kin is being attacked. And so, you know, there are the like national, um, regional, state and local issues that we know people in our community should care about and do care about and are organizing around and like choosing books, making sure that there are a variety of choices for people around those topics. And then thinking intergenerationally, like you talked about reading um, the autobiography of Malcolm X. And it's like, I do think intergenerationally about the topics in the store and it's evident in certain places. It's like, if you're a family or a neighborhood, you could come in and you could get an adult book about um, Malcolm X. You could get Ilyasa Shabazz's, his daughter's middle grades and YA novels about her father's life. You could get the picture book, Malcolm Little, the boy who became Malcolm X, right? Mm-hmm. And you you could um, you could read or, or Walter Dean Myers, like really, I think it was maybe the first picture book about uh, about Malcolm X for children is like you could come in and intergenerationally you could decide that we're going to learn about Malcolm X we're not all going to read the same thing but we want to engage in a conversation that's about learning so that we can have entry points for people at really different places and I think there are certain issues whether it's like the rights of trans folks um, environmental sustainability abolition um, that for which there are choices and there always will be uh, body, bodily autonomy and reproductive rights. Like those things are central to like um, having a, like a just and humane society. And so we should not be uh, sleeping on the importance of making sure that people bump into those topics. And I kind of hope that like if a kid bumps into the picture book about Malcolm X and is like, I want this book, that maybe some of the adults in that kid's life are going to be like, oh, shoot, I better read my notes <laughs> and then get that book. Or that like, you know, a parent who's reading um, Bodies Are Cool with the young person is like, wow, I, I never got to read as a child a book that like said squishy bodies are good bodies. And like, mm-hmm. this now has me thinking about the way I talk about in my head and out of my mouth about my own squishy body and wanting to transform some of that in terms of my conversations with me and my conversations with other people and then looking for resources that are about like getting out of a mindset of of fat shaming um so I know that's like a little bit of a meandering answer and then I I also think a lot about teachers and just teachers on my brains when I when I taught teachers you know it's it's a fact of life that um there's a famous uh, old white dude sociologist named Dan Lordy who would talk about how hard it is to become a teacher because every one of us has engaged in like a 20 year apprenticeship of observation that is much more potent and enduring than a few years of teacher education in like a program. And what he meant by that is like, you've been learning about what school is and what teaching is your whole life. And mostly through pretty conservative framework of like one teacher at the front of a classroom, individual students <laughs> don't work on things together, all these things, right? Lecture, empty vessel. And that when we learn later on in life about how to teach differently, often even if we agree with what we're being told, it's very hard for us to break the pattern that we've been apprenticed into. And I think that's also true around the books that we use to teach with. And so you know, we tend to teach the things we ourselves were taught. We tend to read the books that we ourselves read. And really thinking about teachers means thinking about um, how do you curate a space so that people are introduced to things they don't already know and they, they haven't already engaged with as resources. And what would that look like if you're thinking about a teacher in New Haven Public Schools specifically? Like, what do you want them to to see on the shelf in here that makes them think, oh, I don't have a single book about Mexican freedom fighters in my third grade classroom. And like, this one is called Joe Vito wears pants. <laughs> you know, like, 
<laughs> which also seems like this like rad revolutionary woman <laughs> okay you know um so you know i know it's a long answer but is you can see what i mean about like it's very meandering but also fulfilling and like wonderful If you could write one thing to share with, uh, you know, uh, as a adult reading, I read mostly, you know, to myself in my head, right? Um, and so I always laugh when my partner's like, no, I love when you read. And I'm like, ah, I don't <laughs> love when I read, right? what would be the thing to 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 teach people about reading to themselves to their children right because mm -hmm. there's so many of us who when it comes to reading aloud we have trauma and just feelings of like uh, i don't want to do that yeah um well i think like Part of dealing with our trauma is figuring out how to not pass it on. <laughs> um, how to like break intergenerational trauma without leaving it entirely behind, right? Because it's also part of family history and communal history that's really important to not lose in the understanding of who we are as people. Um, but I think like reading out loud is actually like a pretty wonderful and intimate thing to do um, with other people. Um, I do know a lot of folks have trepidation about it. Um, but I think some of the ways, um, I mean, you're talking about audiobooks, right? And how they, they, they resonate for you, like the hearing of things. And I think it's a really different and can be a super wonderful experience to like hear things read out loud. Um, and often like, you know, one of the best strategies, like if you're teaching writing is to tell people to read their writing out loud because you just, you're engaging with it differently. So I don't know if that, that answers your question. I would just say that, you know, maybe it goes back to the very beginning of our conversation and like this broader view of what reading actually is um is that you know, most of us I'm like a really big believer like every child is a reader every child's a dancer an artist every child is a singer most of us learn that we're not things only mm -hmm. when people tell us that we're doing it wrong like you think you're a great artist every child like you, no child thinks they're shitty at being an artist until somebody is like well that doesn't look like a tree and you're like oh I must not be good at drawing right <laughs> and same thing about like dancing and stuff and I think that the same is kind of true about reading is that like we've learned a lot of, of um, we've learned to see ourselves as incapable and as limited often as readers, instead of being curious about ourselves as readers, like, what is it that you like? What gives you pleasure? Um, what feels uncomfortable or sticky? And like other things in life, like when it feels uncomfortable or sticky, like, how could you, how could you ask questions about that and, and work through that? And is it something you want to change? Is it something you don't want to change? I really think that like, you know, I, I know it's like kind of, it says spread book joy in the window here. And it's like, you know, I feel like book joy takes different forms for different people. It's joy around through in conversation with books. And that's just not going to look the same for anyone. So like whatever you like to read and however you like to read it, I think being curious about that and, and starting there is just a, a good a good place to like demonstrate a hate, a healthy relationship to reading for yourself and to the people around you. I am so appreciative as we come to the end of our time, where can people physically find you digitally find you? Yeah. So 318 Edgewood Avenue is where the book space is located. So that's on Edgewood between Winthrop and Sherman at the corner of Hotchkiss and Edgewood. Um, 
the website for the bookstore does take orders. You can order for shipping, for delivery, for pickup. It's www.possiblefuturesbooks.com. There's a newsletter that we send out about twice a month if we ever act together, once a month if we don't. It has events, book recommendations, and things like that in it. You can sign up on the website. And of course, there's social media where we post a lot of stuff that is kind of last minute or you know, that's happening here that we'd love people to be a part of. So you can look for us on Instagram or on Facebook. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. My favorite question I'm asking people uh, when they come on is yeah. what's a favorite song or a song that connects to the work that we can listen and connect. Um, I mm. guess I have something about listening. <laughs> yeah. 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 I mean, I love it. I wouldn't say this is my favorite song, but I, I feel like it resonates for me on a deep level. And it's this song by the high women, uh, which is like uh, Brandy Carlisle, Marin Morris, uh, Amanda Pearl Shires and Yola. Um, and the song is called crowded table. And it, it goes like, I want a house with a crowded table, a place by the fire for everyone. Um, and I just feel like, you know, I don't know that that's like my personal mantra, but I think it's like kind of the mantra of possible futures is like, you know, I, we want a crowded table and like with a place for everyone. And we want people around the table, like together in some form. And that doesn't always have to look the same, but there has to be space. People need to feel welcome. And there has to be some kind of like communal um ethos to it so that it feels like um you're in you're really in community uh with people and creating creating the possible futures right that you want for yourself for your neighbor for your children for the earth um so so that's it thank you thank you thank you thank you lauren of possible futures thank you Uh, for those of Thank y'all. You're listening to Just in Time Conversations. We'll see you again next week. And until then, let us continue to plant the seeds of change so we can yeah. grow together. Uh, yo, we're trying to play and leave it. All right. See you at the airport. I'm leaving on the next plane. I don't know when I'll be back again. Kiss me and smile for me. Tell me that you wait for me. Hold me like you know I'll never go. Traveling man, moving through places, space and time, got a lot of